The Value of Climate Accounting. Martin Weinstein, Episode 35. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Martin Weinstein. He is the founder of the Yale Open Lab and the Open Earth Foundation. Martin is an amazing expert to talk with. He began his experience in the energy sector by delving into an energy business in his native Argentina. For those wondering what the tipping point is between pursuing a business career or pursuing a PhD, Martin provides his insight of how he did both. The result, after many years of work, as he describes, is his Open Earth Foundation, where he, he is able to be more entrepreneurial in a nonprofit setting, and he can straddle both the research world of academia and the innovative spirit fostered in companies. Our conversation, as many here on the My Energy 2050 podcast, is wide-ranging. Martin recounts his experience working for clients on energy projects and then framing his experience through research on the theories of energy transitions, something I hold dear. We do a slow walkthrough of the limits of current energy companies and how they lock in our present energy system through profit motives. Martin then enables us to walk through both the basics of blockchain and the long-term potential that remote sensing and blockchain contracts hold. I'll leave the full explanation for our discussion, but I guarantee you not many of us grasp the full potential that a digital carbon accounting system offers. I know it has already shifted my research track, and that is totally honest right there. Summarizing our talk, I just want to label Martin both as a visionary expert, I don't do that very often, and a well-grounded social entrepreneur. He understands the realities of what can be delivered to communities and taken up by businesses. Finally, a kind reminder, we do the My Energy 2050 podcast to share knowledge and highlight those contributing to a clean and just energy transition. Today's guest definitely delivers that. But please help us spread the word by sharing episodes with people in your network. My point being here is that we're all committed to building an effective energy transition and you can help us by sharing. And now for this week's episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. I am welcoming onto the My Energy 2050 podcast, Martin Weinstein. He is the founder of the Yale Open Lab and the Open Earth Foundation. In his research and publications, he focuses on blockchaining a green ledger solution to emissions reductions. We'll explore and explain all that in a minute. Martin finished his PhD in 2018 from the University of Melbourne. It is titled The Energy Business System, Transformation, Social Innovation, and Disruptive Smart Grid Business Models. Within it are leading-edge publications outlining how energy companies do business as usual and how they can embrace more radical change through open operations that hold digital solutions as a key measure to reduce emissions and deliver the energy system back to the people. Martin, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Michael, such a great to, to be here. What a, what a pleasure. Looking forward to our, to our chat together. 
Great, great. And did I, I get things right in the introduction there? Spot on. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. I, I first I have I have an opening question that I, I really like, and you you've embraced in your PhD and your research and your foundation the energy system, and this I, I love it. And maybe you could explain why you got interested in the energy system and and how your interest in the system drives your research and all the many things that you do. When I was getting really, really sensitive about climate change, which was around uh, when I was doing college, I was studying astrobiology, which helped me look at the planet as a living organism and a really old organism. And I started it naturally going into, okay, what are the, what are the bulk issues within climate change? And immediately the energy system, obviously it's 70 to 80% of, of the lion's share of, of it. Um, and, and that's primarily from combusting fossil fuels. Uh, and in my head, that naturally makes sense. Like we, we have all this CO2 sequestered over billions of years through photosynthesis. And now we're, we're just burning, putting it back up in the atmosphere. So that was the first logical approach, right? Just a systems-based thinking and saying, you know, the key leverage point here is the energy system. Um, the second is that energy is, is the universe. <laughs> it's it's yeah. kind of like the, the universal vector. Um, we are energy and energy moves around us. And, and so I've developed a very, very interesting um, connection with the different ways of seeing energy uh, and understanding how deeply interconnected, um, how it connects us all. And that's another part that I find uh, perhaps philosophical than uh, practical, which is at the end of the day, part of our issues uh, dealing with uh, climate change and, and, and planetary um, ecological destruction is our illusion that we're separated from nature, whereas it's energy also a great way for us to understand how we're deeply interconnected. Um, and then there was another third part uh, that got me more into the electrical power system and smart grids, which was when I was thinking about doing my PhD, I read a book uh, by Jeremy Rifkin, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it just started helped me start thinking about smart grids in a, in a more active way and and uh, somehow I was already seeing that peer-to-peer -peer systems had to have play a role in that. Um, and then I think part of um, systems intuition led me to want to dive a lot deeper into that. And you know, then it just became fascinating to to read more about about the subject. Um, but at the same time, my first startup, which was out of college, was an energy company um, because. I was already sensitive about the issue of large energy, the role that our large energy companies have in both um, in locking in our current um, status quo of, of the energy system and the importance of new energy models, energy company models that can act more as a social price and, and understand that if you are, if your company is dealing with energy, then you should play a role more of a steward. The, and, and it's, a, it's a very important role in society to actually be that, that intermediary, um, bringing that energy to it. So I, that's also where I got super interested in, in the evolution of the energy company and um, as a system. Mm -hmm. And what, what was your first company? What was that? 
It was um, called Wilcon Energy, and Wilcon stands for Wake Up, Live Consciously. Uh, I started in Argentina, Buenos Aires, which is where I'm from. Um, so I, I came to the United States for college, and I went back. And and after working for some time more on biotech and like biotech, but with an energy focus here in the U.S., it was apparent that the major issues was was not financial. Uh, gaps or technological gaps is that you know we we had enough technology and there was a there was a big boundary um, that needed to be crossed and so I wanted to come I, I wanted to show the model of a I used to call it a, a nonprofit corporation or a for profit I don't know just different variations that now we just call it as a social enterprise but this was back in two thousand seven. Um, and and from there we for almost six years running the company uh we did sustainable architecture we've installed renewable energy in buildings uh we've uh, given consulting to large corporations on their carbon footprint um we've pushed forward large bioenergy projects um at the utility scale uh, and then we invested some of the projects in installing uh, renewable energy in the high desert in the border between Argentina and Bolivia um, with fascinating, very simple technology of uh, parabolic kitchens that just concentrate solar power and, and put it into a stove. And rather than uh, uh, people there using shrubs and creating further desertification. Um, so that was a that was a very interesting model. And I, I learned a lot and I learned a lot by doing um, and so it, it helped me not just think about the energy system, but also understanding what does it take to get people to, let's say, adopt um, passive housing, solar panels, solar thermal. We did a, a lot of large scale solar thermal projects for hot water. Um, so that was that was my first entry into into that world as well. And so, yeah, so nowadays we call it social social innovation. And before, when you were doing it, there there wasn't a, a name for it. And what did you learn? So I, I liked what you said about just by doing it, you you learned a lot. And what what was one yeah. of the key things or a couple things that you learned by doing these? These are sound like tremendous projects and really challenging projects, actually. Yeah, one of the things that I that I, I learned a lot about myself as well. Um, and I think that's also, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, a very important um, nugget. Um, I learned that some, sometimes, most of the times, I would see what the solution was needed um, that would connect with my, my view of a large-scale solution to decarbonization of the energy system. But it was not necessarily what the client wanted. <laughs> so I, I would spend a lot of time working we would spend a lot of time working on trying to first educate whether the client is a household owner or a ceo of a multinational company or someone in government um is that they're like oh we want this and then you look into it and we're like oh but this is I have to look at these other things as well and you know if we tackle it from a holistic standpoint and they're like ah no 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 i just want this <laughs> and but so I, I learned that that um, I I it was hard for me to not to look at it from a big picture, uh, and that is is an issue for a conventional entrepreneur that has to think about you know the client is right I got to make money and uh, we 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 have to deliver 
and so I realized that that was a lot of my research side coming in. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to, to spend a lot more time researching the right solution for the client rather than taking at face value, whatever they think. And some, some understand that these days. Um, so that was one, one part. The second is, um, that cross subsidy, which is a traditional model of social enterprise where we have like, you know, a for-profit and, and like you put, put the funds somewhere else works, but ideally you find them packed into the same, same thing. And, um, and I think that we've evolved, evolved more into better models with like blended financing where you, um, you already have that level of like high impact baked in. Um, and my ideas and, and the things, the ambition of the projects that I wanted to do were hard to land them in Argentina, which, which I don't think had the level of sophistication and understanding and political will to execute on them. And for, I've had so many cases of working for months on projects that were very important, very relevant, that was a win-win for everyone. And then for some reason, politically, it didn't go through. And that was very frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, so that also led me to start researching how to combine my two, my two hats, because perhaps I'm too much of a researcher, big picture researcher to be a traditional entrepreneur, short-term thinking. And, and I'm too much of an entrepreneur to just, just sit, you know, doing research and writing papers. Um, yes. that obviously led to, 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 to the PhD and then the PhD also tested the model and then I was. It was able to put into the Yale Open Lab, uh, where I consolidated it, and then now it's spun off into the Open Earth Foundation, which obviously we can talk talk a bit more about. But okay. yeah, I think those were some of the key key lessons. I, I wanted to go back. Uh, there's so much there, but I, I want to progress to some of our more complex topics like Open X, Open Solar. Uh, but before we get there, let's go with your research route. So then, yeah, you you did your PhD. And in your PhD, you have in there this energy system metabolism. Could you explain that? It's a very complex chart that you have, but I think it's brilliant, actually. Yeah, thank you. Well, no, I think that's just my influence as a, um, my original background is in biology. Uh, and astrobiology is particularly around um, how microbial life influences uh, planetary chemistry and physics. Um, and... And I, I already mentioned it. So the planet Earth was born with a CO2-based uh, atmosphere and um, through photosynthesis, creating oxygen and oxygen reacting with, with UV radiation creates um, ozone. Um, so uh, I, 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 I learned about metabolisms as a way of understanding the how, how biogeochemical cycles operate in, in planet Earth. And, and then... It, already out of college, it was a pit that photosynthesis was a very, the most important metabolism for the ability of this planet. And, and I was already looking at combustion at a massive scale as exactly the opposite of the equation. And so in many ways, it's a metabolism that it's not performed by microbes. It's, it's an exogenous metabolism because it doesn't happen inside a body. It happens in our industrial body. Um, and, and ever since, you, you know, my, my astrobiology thinking, I, I thought about this as 
uh, we've introduced combustion and it's our new metabolic paradigm and we have to change that. Uh, combustion of fossil fuels, of course. So um, I, I wanted to bring that into my research um, because I, I had the freedom in my PhD to be able to look at it from a very large scale, like planetary scale, and then talk about business at that scale. Uh, so I talk about the energy business system, which in many ways, it's a representation of a, um, a traditional uh, company or energy vertically integrated company that that has a cash flow and it, it leads with you know primary primary energy and secondary energy and essentially uh, taking energy from earth, whether it's in fossil based or whether it's in renewable based to uh, society and supply chains. And that's that's his primary role. Uh, but its its mission, its purpose is to maximize profit for shareholders. And so that's where I, I was like, this is at odds because you we, we made this massive industrial complex and and an entity or a series of entities that that end, end up kind of becoming cartels from a, from a point of view, uh, even objectively, from a fossil fuel standpoint. And that's where the, a lot of the focus on carbon majors comes in. Um, they're, they're not necessarily designed to realize the, the importance that they're, they're part of this very important planetary metabolism. So um, I, I wanted to describe it that way. And, and going back to my notes of comparing photosynthesis and combustion, it helped me first, uh, something that I think we, we now know by now that at the beginning of the sustainability um, uh, discussions, 23 years ago, we would talk about, you know, economy, society, and, and environment as these three Venn diagrams that needed to connect, where in fact, um, economies inside society and society is inside environments. So they're nested rather than like these, these overlapping Venn diagrams. And so it was very relevant to put the, the role of the energy business in that uh, framework. And, and a lot of things kind of, um, I mean, it looks complex, complex, complex because it's got a lot of you know circles and, and arrows. But uh, at the end of the day, it's it's flowing um, energy from Earth through to society. Um, and my argument, uh, which led to going deeper into corporate law, was we really need to change uh, the purpose of the company, um, particularly if you're dealing with natural resources, particularly if you're dealing with such an important, um, critical uh, sector like energy, and and then I, you know, going into corporate law, uh, found so many managerial dichotomies that are produced by that. Because if you're running Saudi Aramco or BP, um, your models will show you that you you have a profitable business model well into 2060 through natural gas and through different other products. But that's not compatible with um, mitigating climate change. So how do you how do you step away from a business model that's still profitable? Um, and and then it goes into can you you know as a as a CEO as a as a as a director as a manager can you you can you can get sued you could also get fired. <laughs> um, and, and I think 
Um, so that was one part of my research. But, and right? how does, how, how did, let me uh, push you a little bit then. And how does that connect to the financial system? Because some of the solutions you're proposing now address financing. And uh, how, how does the current uh, energy system rely on, the, we could say, the banking system or the financial system to keep going so that it is profitable in 2060 by just using fossil fuels? Yeah, so a lot of our work on, on the finance part uh, today is on how, how do we finance decentralized energy infrastructure? Uh, in a in a cookie cutting way, in some sense, because there's a couple of things about the decentralization of energy infrastructure that naturally plays an important role within uh, smart grids, uh, demand side management, distributed energy resources such as you know photovoltaics and EVs. They play an important role, but it's not one large scale project finance um, power plant that gets finance over years and it costs half a billion dollars you know it's a lot of small little projects and so it it is important for the you know changing the the not the actual engineering power the social power or, or corporate power by making everyone part of the value chain um and 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 being able to address that that project finance part now I think what you were alluding is the role of the financial sector in, in maintaining the lock-in yes. of the large uh, corporates. And and that's a lot where um, the evolution of ESG is, and I say the evolution because um, a lot of the ESG, uh, like Exxon has has uh, good ESG ratings. Uh, so that, why is that? This, well, yes. you know, so... Uh, there, that's just on how how some of the ESG ratings are designed by MSCI or just Analytics, uh, and they're essentially a black box um, on one side. But uh, you know there are some fundamental things that that are, are not clear there, and so if investors are really want to invest in a 1.5 degree consistent future, um, those signals need to be very clear they also need to have clarity on the business model transformation pathway as do the carbon majors is like if you're running your company now um how are you going to how do you how does saudi aramco going to run its business models in 2050 for example uh, or gazprom or uh, you name it that's a good uh, question they, they need <laughs> no. uh, of yeah. course and i've asked yeah. them uh, and i said like can, can i work with you on that because so far we've we have we see the BP Energy Outlook and we see IEA sort of energy transformation pathway, but I, I want to see how the how the corp, the large corporations are going to transform their core business model over the next thirty years, um, and how that also leads a clear signal to investors because they have to reinvent themselves. Um, but then obviously at the same time, investors need to divest and invest in in, in cleaner solutions, so they have to take a stand. But actually, that's not something that I went into in my PhD. Uh, very no, no. But 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 essentially, they rely on this fi- financial system to keep going. And what you're proposing is the the corporate, uh, the corporations themselves have to change to be connected to understand that they are connected to the Earth biosystem as well, right? They're they're yeah. players themselves, and it should be uh, this ethical change within the companies themselves to push for divesting away from fossil fuels and engaging in cleaner 
energy systems. Can I, can I summarize it like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, they also play a role in, you know, their argument is always like, well, but it's not just us, it's demand, right? There's a growth demand and this comes in this way. Um, and I've put a slightly more focus on supply. Um, because but, but isn't it demand though? A- I mean, but, but maybe we, we have demand because everyone's driving cars. Right. And if everyone's right. driving cars, then then there's demand. So what do we need to do to get rid of cars or what do we need to do to change our heating systems? Right. So, and that's also why uh, in, in that sense, demand has to do their part, uh, but there's, there's a coordinated effort there and, um, and su- supply has to play a role in that transformation. They might say, well, we don't, we don't, you know, that people are buying cars, but historically they've, they've been part of that, you know, yes. also fuel companies have worked with the, the automobile industry to make sure that in the United States, the paradigm was one person, one car because they were able to sell more. So they have a vested interest in the type of energy that is demanded. They have a vested interest. That is a problem. So they have to also in the process change that. That's also very complex for them. So yeah. They're not it, it pushes to do that. Uh-huh. So so there's different ways to to begin to to change this. And I wanted to bring out the Hyperledger project that you worked with for the British Columbia government about ability to track and verify oil wells. And and basically this sets up our conversation for blockchain and understanding how it can work and how it can evolve. And and I find the projects that you're in right now are kind of leading of course, leading edge, because it's all, uh, but also practical in a sense. And maybe this goes back to your entrepreneurship in, in Argentina and the things that you practiced on the ground. And then now you're embracing, we could say this digital uh, transformation uh, around blockchain and other areas. And, and so I'm interested to just as a point of departure then into our more complex world of digital energy systems and blockchain is could you describe this project with the British Columbia government and how does it tie in with digitalization and carbon tracking, carbon accounting? Yeah, let me um, perhaps fill in the gaps of what happened between that part of the research to, to, to mm-hmm. that, and I'll quickly summarize it. So the other part of my research was on smart grid business models. How do we create peer-to-peer uh, prosumer networks? Uh, and that led me to looking at blockchain and I was like, wow, smart contracts. And then I looked at decentralized autonomous organizations and I was like, okay, this is machine based uh, corporate governance. This is very interesting. If I'm saying corporate governance is part of the problem and now we have a way of cybernetically designing a corporate governance that will solve itself. It was like, this is very interesting. So that drove me down the blockchain rabbit hole. And then out of the PhD, we started the Yale Open Lab to start saying, okay, digital digital technology, blockchain, IoT, and AI are going to play a very important role. But also, we have to tackle this from a non-traditional proprietary startup approach for interoperability and global coordination as needed. We need to be able to look at the open source layer and the open digital infrastructure for that. So that's that was what 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 the Open Lab was is designed to incubate is projects around that. And out of that came two important things: a project for an integrated climate accounting system, uh, which started by 
we have a record keeping system and we have a, a, a carbon budget that we need to keep track of. Um, so if, if, if we're able to derive, uh, let's say, a value of carbon price based on the state of the atmosphere, that is something that smart contracts and oracles from the blockchain space can do that we could not do before because it will self-execute based on what the CO2 concentration of the atmosphere is. Mm -hmm. Could you explain um, oracles, the role of oracles in this? Yeah, so or a, a smart contract is like a self-executing self uh, digital agreement. And an oracle is what brings in data that's outside a blockchain to execute that, that uh, contract. So if, if we, you and I make a smart contract bet that the Yankees are going to win you know, the next game, uh, the oracle needs to be the digital agent that actually has to securely verify what was the result of that game and then put it into the variable and based on that it will self-execute itself right mm -hmm. so it's like someone it's some it's an agent that has to be able to say the truth that it, we neither you or i defined it so an oracle in this case would be you know a co2 sensor in the mount Alo observatory but it's not just one for the atmosphere it's multiple ones so they're constantly bringing in data uh, attesting to certain truth into the uh, the variables that execute a contract. Could, could th that seems a bit scary to me, <laughs> to to just rely on on sensors and quantitative data to make a decision or to prompt something to do something. Would there be like a a human or we could say maybe an organization that uh, compiles the data and looks at the data, assesses the data, and then decides whether uh, a certain contract or maybe they don't know about the contract but they issue some kind of statement or something that then triggers the contract. Yeah. And this is, there's different tools to design contracts in different ways. Um, so for example, you have uh, multi-signature models where you have to have the machine to give its opinion or to, to give its input and you've got humans to, to do their discussion, but those humans need to be doing it based on the reality, right? Otherwise, you're making decisions that are can be totally post-truth. Um, and and then, you know, it will execute. If they both agree, then they execute. If they don't agree, then, you know, I don't know, another process goes through and then a third entity has to come in. Um, there's, this is different ways that, that, that we have today to design these things. Um, so... So then after, uh, after almost like three years working on the use of a lot of this constellation of technologies for, and the framework for an integrated climate accounting system that helps the non-state actors, the corporates, the subnationals, how they can be nested within the Paris Agreement. Um, and how can we create accountability across um, a lot of this front? Um, we start looking at a, a particular part of the blockchain technology stack, which is on decentralized identifiers, IDs, who's who. Um, and the evolution or one of the applications of that is the use of verifiable credentials, where uh, always a good example of that is um, our ID and our credentialing system is centralized. The US government uh, gives me my social security number or uh, the state of Connecticut gave me a driver's license. Um, and um, a police officer can look at my record and can see everything about me. Uh, but in a verifiable credential that has cryptography baked in, I actually own my data, and there are certain entities that are allowed to verify certain parts of that data. 
So for example, a police officer would stop me in the car. It would say, the only thing they need to know about my my driving credential is, am I allowed to drive this vehicle? Yes or no. And so that would factor in, am I over 18? But they don't need to know when I was born. They don't need to know what gender I am uh, or if I change genders. Uh, they just need to know, can I drive a car? Um, so that's, that's the cryptography baked into this um, digital identity and governments all the time. They give a credential to a company, a, ability to operate. And it one simplifies of the, things. One of the, I mean, yeah. these, these credentials simplify things. So rather than, yeah, having the data for the date of your date of birth, it, it's a process of simplification. So yes, you can, yes, no, you can drive a car and then that could lead to something else. Yes, no. Is that kind of the point here? Well, so my credential will have all of the information, but but the verifier does not necessarily have access to all that information. The the credential is smart enough that, you know, if you ask a question, am I over eighteen? It knows how when I was born, and so it can calculate the answer based on that. And then the receiver can trust that that answer is derived from the actual data rather than receiving the, the data. Okay. okay. Um, so if you need to if you need to verify certain things about a company, you don't have to go and and see all the company data, which is very important for the private sector, which you know they don't want to share all their data. Um, but the government needs to be able to verify certain things. It also brings a lot of automation, which this a lot of this digital transformation also brings. Um, a lot of the credentials are paper based. It's you know, a good example is I got vaccinated and they gave me a piece of paper and a signature. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> this says low school. Um, uh, so, but but a lot of things work that way, right? Um, so there's no there's no digital trust network, and also you know paper based, you have to be present. But if if you're we're interacting over the internet, but but so if you're scaling, the, so so sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Um, if you're creating a carbon accounting system, and you're automating the system of this accounting system. What are the benefits of that within the Paris Agreement? Well, the benefits of automation, I think, are, are a couple um, and not in a specific order. It reduces cost, right? So if I say, oh, you have to put together all your carbon data, whether you're a city or whether you're a company, it's like, oh, that's going to cost me money. Uh, if, if it's already baked into how your data, data structure is, it could be a report that just outputs in a certain way. Um, it also reduces, you know, the, the frictions of who's going to go in and verify that data. If you have to get PwC or KPMG or someone to come in and audit that, that's also going to cost uh, money. But if it's also done in, a, in the right digital structure, then a lot of that could be automated. Similar, if we think about how do we... Um, how do we uh, submit our taxes, uh, particularly here in the United States? Um, my bank accounts are connected. I can I can integrate them into QuickBooks, and that can output to TurboTax. And just to give yeah, one I, example I of a that, software that, tool, it, it's not a good. I just got a letter from the IRS from a person <laughs> asking asking me to verify that I, I pay taxes outside of the United States. So. A real person or with a real name, but yeah, and I was used to it being automated, so I didn't ever worry right. about these well, letters. So there we go. And it's and it's important to also have humans behind it, but also you know some part can be manual and some can cannot, and also manual work uh, can be prone to errors. 
whereas when you have all the digital records, if there are errors, you could you could find them. Um, and um, and it also helps you follow a certain protocol, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and for for the climate accounting, that's also very relevant because a big issue is double counting, um, reporting emissions one way, the other someone else is reporting emissions. So this this becomes um, um, yeah, an, an, an important area. And, and so when looking at decentralized identifiers and verified credentials, it turns out that the primary subnational government that's been uh, advancing the technology from an open source standpoint has been the government of British Columbia. They've been um, issuing what are the ideas are also some call, called self-sovereign identities. So you have your sovereignty and you have your sovereignty over your data. Uh, and so this obviously comes in a new wave of the importance of data privacy. And so they've been working on this for their citizens and then also for their companies. Um, and, and, and part of the open source project uh, that runs on this uh, for DIDs, decentralized identifiers, is Hyperledger Indie, which Hyperledger is the, let's say, the blockchain section of the Linux Foundation. And the verifiable credentials, the library, open source library based called uh, Ares, Hyperledger Ares. And the government of British Columbia is the core, one of the core maintainers of Hyperledger Ares. That already is fascinating. That the subnational government is is really pushing forward technology for self-sovereign identities of individuals and corporations, essentially to protect them from government. <laughs> so can can you like, can you can you break this down a little bit more? I I understand. I th I'm on the edge of understanding everything that you just said. So could you? Maybe explain a bit more Hyperledger, and so the British. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Hy Hyperledger is an organization within the Linux Foundation, and they uh, host open source projects. Uh, Linux is really good at, uh, at creating a community around an open source project, and and normally it's a it's open source because everyone wants the functionalities for different reasons. Um, and so in this case, it's, it's the functionality of being able to issue these IDs and issue these verifiable credentials and, and create digital trust networks between a holder of a credential, let's say a citizen, um, the government who's the issuer and a verifier, which might be uh, an auditor, right? Um, so a CPA is a verifier and the government is the, you know, kind of like the issuer and, and you know, we're the holder of like our tax burden in some sense. Um, so there is there is always this triad of trust. It's very similar to cre credit cards. In fact, MasterCard is part of one of the key uh, working groups. Um, MasterCard is not the is the issue. The bank is the issuer of your card, uh, and you're the holder. And the merchant is the verifier, right? So where's Visa? Well, Visa or MasterCard. They provide the govern the trust framework between the three parties. Now, this applies that not just to credit cards. It digitizes a lot of that part, and to to be able to use for so many different things. So, so it's and like that, yeah. Using okay, this is a really bad analogy. So please correct me. It's like using your credit card to go and vote, or or it's using your credit card to uh, exchange your solar energy uh, in and out of the grid or something like this. Is, is this correct? Yeah. It's similar to having a credit card for that. You know, it's like, like a, uh, your, it's as if you're, you have a digital version of your 
ID or of your passport. And that has enough information to, to also be able to bring in all the records of that. Did you pay taxes? Did you vote? You know, now not everyone has access to all that information, right? right. You don't want right. the government to have access to all, all, when did you leave the country and stuff? Different groups might be able to be allowed to access certain parts of your data, but you own all your data. Mm-hmm. And then you're uh, building this out. You're building this out to a much more complex system uh, of relationships between companies. Well, and so in the climate mechanics space, we were like, wait, this is a very important piece within the technological framework. Um, and because if let's say if you operate a oil well or gas well or your company, just to give one example, but it applies to every company. Uh, you have a carbon footprint and you might want to have someone to verify and the government might want, need to be able to have, uh, be able to verify certain carbon intensity of your information. But at the same time, going back to the example of the police officer and the driver's license, you want to confer transparency alongside privacy. And in the climate space, it's always been a, a, a problem, an dichotomy of like, how, how can we have climate transparency alongside privacy? Companies do want to have their privacy because it relates to um, to the um, you know to to their competitiveness. So how how do we create a structure for corporations to to be able to radically transparent about their carbon intensity, and that also is compatible with automation? Automation, for example, to uh, rewards and penalties based on your carbon performance or your climate performance. Um, and that that is so transparent that can be verified and that could be embedded into records. And those records can be rolled up from the corporate records, which is where the data technically is sourced. You know, how much, what was your production record? You've got emission sensors, like where, where's the information in a way that also, again, links to sensors, because a lot of what we see out there from uh, corporate uh, carbon footprints is self-reported. So they fill out a form. So, we, how do we verify mm-hmm. that? Could you, could you tie, um, tie tie this in? I don't, I don't mean to like jump over things, but just to put it in context again, uh, the system of uh, carbon accounting is the Paris Agreement, and what does this mean then uh, for helping to fulfill uh, the Paris Agreement? Some of the nested relationships you you, you spoke about. Um, yeah. So. One of the important parts around this is we realize wait, the Paris Agreement is between countries and the UNFCCC. So those are the parties and the secretariat. So what happens about what happens with cities and companies and civil society and uh, and individuals? Um, the 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 traditional way of doing inventories is countries have to submit their inventory to the, the Paris Agreement and source data from different sectors, energy sector, agriculture sector, their ministries. Uh, so there's no linkage between the data of non-state actors, which are anything that's not a sovereign nation, um, and the Paris Agreement. And we don't propose that, that these should be connected because it's going to be really hard to change that. Uh, but in a parallel process, we think that by geotagging a lot of the data and we're looking at the nested relationships of a, a company and its supply chain is within the jurisdiction of a subnational actor, whether it's California or British Columbia or what, whatever jurisdiction is or a municipality, uh, 
all of those subnational actors also are creating their inventory, also have their pledges. So the chances for those subnational actors, like a city to meet their climate pledge, or the state to meet the climate pledge, or the country to meet the pledge, more and more is going to be a factor of how many non-state actors operating within your territory actually have pledges and are actually, you know, making them happen. Uh, and then roll up the data. So the data would just roll up to the national level. And then that would be an alternative way of creating an inventory. And so we've been researching that for uh, a couple of years and, and we're working now on a lot of the digital infrastructure to be able to, to test that and to uh, use that as an in, independent climate accounting network that would aid, for example, into the large exercises of the Paris Agreement, such as the global stock take, which is essentially happening every five years when we say all these countries said they were going to do this. How did they do? Okay, we got to do a lot better than that. We got to improve our, our pledges. We got to change our things. And it's just a, a stock take to keep us track into 1.5 degrees. Excellent, Martin. Thank you. Uh, I just want to uh, have one final question. I think this builds on what you just spoke about. But what is the what is the Open Earth Foundation? Uh, could you just describe that maybe in one minute? I really want to give it a nice plug. Uh, the, the website's awesome, so I want to point people to it. But what what is the what was your reasoning for starting the Open Earth Foundation? Yeah, and we launched last year, and we're we're going to be doing our, our web relaunch uh, later this year. Um, so, you know, after a couple of years running the lab at Yale, it was apparent that the model of looking at the intersection of digital tech and open source and planetary scaled approaches um, works, makes sense. Out of that comes very important projects. But to bring them to the real world, the university is not necessarily fit for purpose. Just it's, it's done, it has a lot of bureaucracy to be able to operate. So decided to launch uh, a nonprofit, which acts as a bit of a hybrid because the Open Earth Foundation is the, the umbrella entity, but if projects get incubated and get launched, they could be launched as subsidiaries. Um, and they're all open source. So everything we do, obviously, is Creative Commons and open source. Uh, and it's a 501c3 based in California, but, um, but we operate purely at how do, we, how do we think and usher digital infrastructure that augments humanity's capability to maintain planetary resilience? Because um, at the end of the day, that's that's what's at stake is that we're eroding our livability on the planet, and most solutions there are siloed or addressing one part or another part. We have to really work as a system, and that tends to be more ambitious tackles. And and when you're tackling from a systems approach, you don't necessarily want to be a for-profit company because others will see you as a competitive entity. We cannot compete with anyone. We have to be, you know, have to think about what's a common, common a structure that helps uh, a global Earth system management network operate. It's kind of like the internet running on open, open standards and open protocols. Um, so that's a bit where where we we see ourselves and and where we work in uh, in research, but also deployment. So so we do a lot of the big picture research. You know, we also deployed in engineering. Um, we are still getting a bit on the off the ground uh so we're going to be hopefully pushing a lot of code between now and the end of the year and and showcasing some demos of of also open platforms for climate accounting for solutions of better you mentioned open solar and open x better ways of doing automation and project finance again for that decentralized infrastructure 
which is very relevant. Um, and then research on how do we use AI to improve, how do we model the Earth system to predict what's going to happen and use that for our incentive mechanisms, for example. Great. Martin, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. What a pleasure. Uh, really happy, happy maybe in a couple of years as we, th if we progress, would, would, would love to join back again and, and share more, Michael. Uh, and of course, I think this could go for hours. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>